When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Swing and a drive, right field and deep. Back goes Aquino, it's got a chance, gone! Get out the tape measure, long gone! Fly the W! Cubs fans, it's time to fly the W with Dustin Rhodes and Paul Crawley-Jean. You are listening to the Fly the W670 podcast. It's episode 10 of season number three, Remembering the 84 Cubs. Don't forget to listen, download, review. Most importantly, subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on all the socials. Fly the W670 on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook, or email us at flythew670 at gmail.com. Crowley, happy uh, end of another week. Uh, Nothing much happening as far as Cubs news. Lots of rumors, lots of people saying that eventually – Cody Bellinger and the Cubs are going to come to a deal, but at this moment, nothing quite new on that front. Well, we're going to keep our fingers crossed and hopefully, you know, like I said, we're, we're, we're giving the benefit of the doubt and, and hopefully something still gets done before pitchers and catchers report February 14th. Yes. Uh, early happy Valentine's day. I'm sure Crowley. It's hard to believe, but this season marks the 40th anniversary of the 84 Cubs when the Tribune bought the Cubs back in 81 and brought in Dallas Green, the Cubs were drawing less than 10,000 fans a game. You had a chance to interview Bob Ibick, Cubs PR director from 81 to 89, about the magical season and some of the behind-the-scenes stories. Joining me now on the Fly the W podcast, I'm happy to be at the Cubs cave of Bob Ibock. Bob was the Cubs PR director from 1981 until 1989. And Bob, you know, we were talking earlier, they just had the big 1984 reunion, and it is the 40th year since that magical team. Is it? Does it feel hard to believe that it's been that many years? Well, having just turned 75 years old, Paulie, I just said, you know, it's it's it, it feels it sometimes, you know, but what great memories. I mean, uh, just a magical, magical season. And I'm looking forward to the reunion this year with some of the guys coming back. Uh, they're all like brothers, fraternity brothers. You know, you hang around with them on airplanes and field trips and everything else and go to the ballpark every day. And it's nonstop. And, and in PR, you don't have any off days. I mean, Ned Coletti, my assistant at that time, and later became the Dodgers general manager. Uh, Ned was my right-hand guy along with Sharon Panazzo. And, uh, we worked every day when the ball club had an occasional day off. We were still in the office catching up with statistics, lining up interviews. And after Sandberg's magical game in June, it just became a blitz. Huh? I can imagine. Now you caught the baseball bug early. You just happened to go to a pretty cool first game. Why don't you tell our listeners about your first game that you've ever went to? Well, right? it was a perfect game because Don Larson pitched in it in the world series. 1956 against the Brooklyn Dodgers. My dad, we were living in the, in the Bronx for about nine years. He got a couple tickets at last minute. We got there about the second inning. And I, the things I was only about, I think, I, nine years old at the time. And the things I remember was the countdown in the stands, the buzz. 
And of course, Yogi Bear doing the bear hug on him when it was all over uh, at, at the last out. But it was a, a magical thing. In those days, I was a big Yankee fan and a Mickey Mantle fan. My dad would get us 50 cent tickets. We sit out in the bleachers and probably for a total of six or seven dollars, we'd have a couple hot dogs, get down there on the sub uh, subway and uh, and see a double header on Sunday afternoon. So that was my start in baseball. And I kind of got the bug from there. Uh, yeah, I can uh, completely understand. You got to work as a sports writer covering the Washington Senators and the Redskins in the 60s. So you got to Ted Williams, legendary manager of the Senators. Everyone remembers his, his playing days in Boston. And then you got to be with the Orioles in the 70s. And then you became a sports editor in Philadelphia. And that's where you happened to meet a uh, very famous person in Cubs lore, Dallas Green. Tell us about your interactions with Dallas in Philadelphia. Well, I was a, I was the uh, sports editor of the Philadelphia Journal and uh, covered a lot of hockey up there with the Flyers, some Eagles games, 76ers, and, of course, the Philadelphia Phillies, the great Mike Schmidt team. And Dallas was the manager of that. And in uh, 1980, uh, they, they won the World Series and they beat Fry's team. And it was amazing you know, uh, victory for them. It just turned the city upside down. And he and I became good friends. I wrote one of my five books, The Comeback Kids that year. And it was a, just a fun story to write. Larry Bowe was on that team. And uh, Vukovic was a, was was a player at that time. Didn't play very much, but because uh, he only hit under 200. I used to kid Vuk about that. But he, he got the ring. Lee Ilya was the third base coach in that team. So when Dallas came to uh, Chicago and was hired, as a general manager in late October of 81, he calls me up on the phone one day and he says, uh, Hey, I back, get your butt out here to uh, Chicago. I want you to be my PR director. And I said, Dallas, I'm a newspaper guy. I, I do radio. I said, I've never done public relations. The, the PR guys that I've always dealt with, you know, you buy a couple of guys, some steaks and beers, and that's, I guess that's what you do. He says, no, there's more to it than that. He <laughs> says, get on a plane and get out here. So I came out, Frank Maloney was then became the ticket manager. He and I were introduced at a press conference in November, and we were the uh, one of the first two hires of Dallas Greens on the on the administrative level. And I quickly uh, found out how interesting and how difficult being a PR director of the Chicago Cubs would be. My first press conference was set up. We were going to have a new uh, uniform for the Cubs that year, and we had just gotten Fergie Jenkins to come back with us. And Fergie was going to model it. And we went down to a downtown, uh, I think it was the Hyatt Regency, and had our introduction press conference. Well, they put a big banner up in the back of the room, building a new tradition, which Bing Hampton, our marketing director, had come up with. That was our slogan. And Barney uh, Sterling was our the guy that was in charge of uh, cinematography and, and things. But he went back. Barney went back to the 40s. And they said, Barney, I'm going to need some footage on Fergie that we can show and uh, that day, can you come up with something? Nah, not a problem, Bob. Well, Barney was in his middle eighties. <laughs> so we get to the, we get to the, the, the uh, uh, theater room there and there's a big screen, Paul, coming down from the ceiling, but it, it, it never would stay all the way down. So my marketing guy, Buck Peden, who used to be with the White Sox, I said, Buck, you got to stand behind here and hold this thing down <laughs> so that it doesn't fly up into the ceiling. Barney's out with a reel-to-reel projector, and I should have been tipped off there that something was going to go awry because 
uh, as the thing's spinning and he's showing some old film clips of Fergie. Well, it was a pitching clinic where Fergie would come to a, a stop, look over to first base, check the runner, and then stop and do it all over again. This is not an action thing. So I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do now? This is this is not really a film on Fergie. Well, the words weren't out of my mouth when the projector went sideways. Barney, unfortunately, had a stroke that day. <laughs> oh, no. The projector starts landing on top of him. The screen is going wacky sideways. I don't know whether to run or keep on holding down the screen to help Buck. And I see in the back right-hand corner, Fergie's putting up his pants among two waitresses back there to get into his uniform. He thinks I'm motioning for him to come up. He's zippering up his pants as he's walking up to the stage. <laughs> and I hear Buck in the background. I got my tie caught on here. I said, you got to help me. I motioned, I think, to somebody else. You better hang on and get Buck here because I got to go get Barney on the floor with the projector spinning around. <laughs> and now Fergie thought I gave him the hand sign to come on in. It was a parade from a circus. And I thought to myself when the day was over, so this is PR. Well, the Cubs, <laughs> Bob, the, the Cubs needed good PR because when the Tribune buys the Cubs from the Wrigley family and they bring Dallas over and he brings you guys over there, this is not what people think about when they think about Cubs. It's not what pops in your mind. That team in, in 1981 was drawing less than 10,000 fans. It, it, it was it would almost be unrecognizable to Cub fans today, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I Where my, where my office was when I first came there was a little – we were actually outside. We had to go up a little stairway, and outside, we were in the in the basement, or not the basement. I would say on the lower concourse. It was a small room. There were about six of us in there, along with my secretary, Ned Coletti, myself, and two other people. And we were it was it was shoulder to shoulder. And in the cold weather, and it was a heck of a cold winter that year. It it, it very rarely got below uh, above, I should say, twenty degrees. Mm. Um, my car, I remember, froze in the hotel that I was staying at and I couldn't get it out till we got back from spring training, but it was, uh, it was a tough time getting everything done. We had to get the, uh, the media guy printed and get it ready for spring training in the middle of uh, February and doing that. And, uh, it was just, there was a lot of things going on. And I remember when we finally moved upstairs and got into a bigger office, Somebody told me, oh, that was the office that after all the Cub games back in the 70s, uh, the, Mr. Wrigley would invite employees in there for cocktail hour. And I found out why I, I had a sink in the back of my office there, what it was used <laughs> for, and a refrigerator. <laughs> so so it, it was like their theory was it, back in those days, if we could just play 500 ball to June, we'd sell enough tickets for beautiful Wrigley Field in June, July, and August, and September, and that would be a successful season. If we happen to win more games than we lost, hey, that's okay. But right. nobody put emphasis on winning. And that's where <laughs> Dallas Green was someone that was extremely competitive. Oh, yeah. And he kind of came in, and he ruffled some feathers probably a little bit early on, but, but he had a desire to win. And so, mm -hmm. obviously, when he comes here, he wants to bring people that he trusts, and he goes to the Phillies organization – bringing you from Philadelphia, and then from the Phillies, bringing Lee Elia, who we're going to talk about Lee a little bit more a different time. Yeah. But John Vukovic is a coach. Is Billy first, Connors came over. Yeah, Billy <laughs> Connors. And then he starts to kind of mold this team a little bit and starts to make a lot of trades. And, Bob, when I'm going through from, like, 
nine, the end of 1981 to 1984, and you see the amount of turnover that Dallas kind of pulled off. It's unbelievable. He trades Mike Kruckow and Cash to get Keith Moreland and Dickie Moles in December of 1981. And then in a trade that could arguably be considered the greatest trade in Cubs history, he swaps shortstops in January of 1982 with the Phillies. He trades Yvonne Jesus for Larry Boa and, oh, yeah, a throw-in player, a third baseman named Ryan Sandberg. Yeah, Sandberg had come up with the Phillies at the end of the previous season and shown a little bit of talent there in, in Philadelphia. And Dallas remembered that. And I remember being in the room when he was having the negotiations with the Phillies general manager, Paul Owens, who was nicknamed the Pope. And the deal originally was going to be De Jesus for Boa and a throw-in. And Dallas kept on saying, I remember him on the phone. Nope, I want Sandberg. Nope, I want Sandberg or there's no deal. And he, he wore him down. And finally, Paul Owens threw in Ryan Sandberg. And that's how we got Rhino. And he became our third baseman in the 82 season. Uh, played exclusively there because Bump Wills was our second baseman. But Rhino, at the end of the 82 season, here's how he got over to second base. We're, Ilya, Lee Ilya called for a, uh, a workout on an off day in September. Well, the ball club was going nowhere. We were under 500. And the, the guys weren't too happy coming into Wrigley Field because, as you know, in Phil, I mean, in uh, September, it can get pretty chilly. So he's going to have a workout, infield grounders, go over some fundamentals and everything else. Well, Bump wasn't happy to be there. He had gone across the street to where McDonald's was <laughs> and bought a couple of cheeseburgers and uh, put them in the back of his pockets of his uniform, walked across the street and resumed coming in to take the workout. Well, that didn't sit well with Lee. And as we found out later on in the 83 tie, tirade, <laughs> he, he, he blew his gasket. And he told Dallas later on, he says, he's never playing second base for me again. And that's when Sandberg uh, got into a few games at the end of September and was over at second base. And the following season, Rhino was moved over to second base. So you can say that Ryan got over to second base the next season thanks to the result of two Big Mac or, or cheeseburgers. I think there might be an advertising tie in there, Bob. But, uh, <laughs> you know, now that Sandberg is able to play a little bit of second, Dallas goes and, and he trades a couple minor leaguers. He gets Ron Say, and he brings over Steve Trout from the south side. And, and so on the 4th of July in 83, the Cubs were really only one game out of first right. place, and that's pretty good. But rough second half, they, they, they once again, they finish in fifth place, 19 games behind the Phillies. Elias let go, and then Dallas decides to go and hire Jim Fry. And as you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, Dallas managed against Fry in the 1980 World Series. It was Royals versus the Phillies. Yeah, and you know, I I had a hand in, in a, a small hand in bringing Jim Fry over, and uh, it goes back to the years when I covered the Orioles, and Jim Fry was one of Earl Weaver's coaches, and Jim was a student of hitting. He was a great hitting coach. And uh, he was a first base coach with the Orioles. And I had a pretty good relationship with him. And uh, I know when Dallas said he was going to be a candidate to be a, a, our manager, he sent me and he says, take your wife to Baltimore. I know you guys are back there. Take Jim and his wife, Joan, out to a nice restaurant and have a dinner. So I took him to a great restaurant, seafood place. We big, huge lobsters. And, um, of course, my wife ate one old lobster that night that they're still talking about back there. <laughs> but I came back, and I reported back to Dallas, and I said, you know, I think he'd be a pretty good manager here. He he knows the game. He knows hitting. He could help out some of the guys. He's a little feisty. He's got some of that Earl Weaver in him. 
And I think Dallas was considering also Joe Torrey at that mm. time, who I actually, that was kept kind of private. Joe came down one night and I'm back in my office right across uh, from Dallas's uh, office. And there's a bathroom there leading over to where the poodle was or our lunchroom. And so I go in there to take a break and in walks in this guy and I look over and it's Joe Torrey. And I said, <laughs> Joe, what are you doing here? And it was eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night. And he, Dallas probably thought nobody else was there. He's sneaking them in. And he says, I'm here to see Dallas. I said, oh, okay, I'll let you go. Looking for that manager's job, huh? And that's, he didn't get it. And Jim Fry did. Hmm. And that's how Jim Fry came to the uh, Chicago Cubs. All right. So Jim Fry's over to the Cubs. You know, there, there's a couple moves that happened in the offseason. There's a three-way trade to bring over Scott Sanderson. Richie Hebner was signed as a free agent. But spring training did not go really well for you guys in 1984. It did not look like it ended up. Oh, that was a disaster. I mean, we lost 13 games at one time out there. I think we entered 20 and seven. Uh, we won a few games toward the end and everybody was kind of, we, we broke from, from Mesa at Ho-Ho Camp Park and coming back to Chicago. Well, I, no, we did not come back to Chicago. We started on the West coast in San Francisco and we played uh, the Giants. Then we played uh, the Dodgers and then we went over and played San Diego. We came back, I think it was a total of five games and, uh, I thought, uh-oh, this is going to get off to a bad start. We <laughs> lost the first game, but we came back from that road trip. I think uh, we were one game under. And for the rest of the season, we never fell under 500 again for the entire season. It just took off from there. And, of course, it really took off uh, after uh, that June game against St. Louis. Right. Like you were saying, 7-20 and 20 to finish spring training – you let go of Fergie Jenkins at the end, and he's only 16 games shy of winning 300 games. Mm -hmm. But I think that kind of speaks a little bit to Dallas's desire to win is that, hey, I'm not here for, you know, token wins. We're, we're here to try to put together a team. How hard was that, though, to have to let go of Fergie at the end of spring training? Well, I was one of the guys that was down there in the field when we had to say goodbye to him. And Fergie's a classy guy. I've always loved the guy. And uh, he, you know, he, he, he took it. But it was it was tough because when you see that's probably the writing on the wall, you're not coming back anywhere else. Uh, I I've been part of sometimes, and my son, who's now the assistant general manager with the Tampa Bay Rays, tells me it's tough when you're telling somebody they're no longer employed or you're sending them back to the minors. Those are tough conversations because it affects their whole family, and uh, it it's a tough business. You don't see that the fan doesn't see that, but you're dealing with players lives and their families and when you have to make decisions like that you do but as dallas always said i've got to make the tough decisions and he was prepared to do that dallas on the outside to the public looked like he was a rough and tough guy he was a teddy bear he loved one thing i always loved about dallas he was a family guy he always asked how your family was doing the wife and the kids and he he was always you know giving you a pat in the back or he would kick you in the butt. And, and there were times Dallas came up to me and he says, you know, Bob, I'm never going to ask you to do something I wouldn't do myself. And the thing I admired about Dallas Green, he goes back, he pitched in the major leagues, didn't have a great record, you know, with the Phillies or the Senators or whatever back in the 60s. But he had a good fastball and he had a great arm until he got hurt uh, there. But he also was in the scouting department with the Phillies. He moved up into like a scouting director's position there. He became the manager. So 
He once said to me, he says, you know, you can't BS me. I've been at every turn in this game and I know what it takes. And he looked at me, he says, Bob, I'll never get on you. But my motto is whatever it takes, whatever it takes. If you want to go out and play golf in spring training and you get all your work done, bring your golf clubs out there. I don't care, but you better get your job done. And he, he was a big John Wayne. He, right. When he came into the, he came into a room with that shock of white hair and his big frame, you knew he meant business and he set the tone for the organization. Well, not a lot of people believed in 1984. Everybody from the Chicago papers to Sports Illustrated, the New York Times, they have the Cubs finishing last in the NL East. And Dallas knew that another move needed to happen. And so he went dipping back into the Phillies. He trades Bill Campbell and Mike Diaz for Bobby Dernier, Gary Matthews, and Porfi Altamirano. That had to have been, uh, I mean, that was right before opening day. That That's kind of a shocking move so close to the season starting. Well, the two keys there were obviously to Niram and Matthews because Matthews, the Sarge, he was going to be our captain, our, our, our kind of our go-to guy to rally everybody, and he did that. I mean, he and, he and uh, Keith Moreland became instrumental in when we lost a couple tough games Nobody got down on themselves. And Denier, I mean, that was the one-two combination, top of the order. And uh, with with Sandberg batting two and Denier lead off, that set the table for the middle of the order to produce. And that was a key, key move uh, to get us going off to a decent start. You know, not only that, but I, it just it improved the outfield defense from 83 completely because you had Leon Durham playing left. You know, you, you had – Moreland was still in right. It's at center. It just, it just, the defense wasn't there. And, and by getting, you know, by putting Leon Durham in first base, by putting Matthews in left and by having Bobby D in center, it really improved the defense. Not even like, and you said the oh, offense, yeah. obviously. Well, one thing I got to tell you, you mentioned Leon Durham. There's an interesting sidelight this. Most fans don't know about that. You know, everybody remembers the 84 Cubs and out in San Diego and the ball going through his legs. Well, if you go back a few years, uh, we had a trade on the on the on the table with the Philadelphia Phillies, where we would have gotten Denaird, we would have gotten Matthews, and we would have been sending various players over to the Philadelphia Phillies. One of which would have been Leon Durham. Hmm. And when that trade was nixed because of a budget matter, I thought Dallas was going to resign because Tribune came back and uh, you can't do this deal. It was a put us over budget, and Dallas slammed his fist down. I remember we were in the winter meetings when this went on and he says, dang it. He says, this would get us up to the second place and compete in the NL East. He says, that's what we're here for. And not just to go ahead and just be there and, and play 500 ball. So when that deal didn't go down, it was ironic that two years later, okay, now we make the deal and we get to near and we get uh, Matthews and, but we still had Durham. Durham would have been a member of the Philadelphia Phillies in October of 84. He would not have been out there in San Diego on October the 7th when that ball went through his legs. This is Season 3, Episode 10 of the Fly the W670 Podcast. Remembering those 84 Cubs, don't forget to listen, download, subscribe to the Fly the W Podcast. And, of course, don't forget to leave that five-star review well, the Cubs get out of the gate quick. They're 12 and 8. They're tied for first with the Mets and the Phillies. They're still in first place on May 25th. Got 26 and 16 record when Dallas pulls off another trade. This time he's trading longtime fan favorite Bill Buckner 
to the Boston Red Sox. He talked about balls going between the legs, but he swaps Buckner for Dennis Eckersley. And slowly but surely, that rotation, because he had a lot of guys that were injured, uh, Big Daddy, uh, you know, Rick Russell was injured. You had some injuries on there. But now three out of the five guys on there were just were because of trades Dallas Green made. And when Dennis, I mean, that had to have been really hard to lose someone like Billy Buck, who was beloved by the fan base in Chicago and by his teammates. Yeah. Billy, uh, Billy and I were pretty close. It, and, and Billy could be very moody at times when he, he didn't get his hits that day. He always had a favorite expression. Some, we were in a ball game four to three, and Buck would go one for five. And uh, we'd be sitting in the, in the clubhouse way down the left field on that old clubhouse. And somebody would say, hey, Billy, good game. Put a smile on your face. And he'd look at him and say, you be happy. And that became his nickname, you be happy. Because <laughs> after the game's over, our our um, our great trainer, Tony Garofalo in those days, he took a lot of time with Buck. Buck, would Buck went through a lot of pain. And he would sit there with two buckets filled with ice and uh, and soaking his ankles sometimes for an hour after every ball game he mm. played hurt and i had a I had to go down there the day that you know we're going to clubhouse one of those deals hey buck you know we're sending you to boston and we're getting eckersley and uh that's how that went down eckersley on the other hand when he arrived one of my favorites because he was a character he always had different sayings for different pitches he had his own lingo and after ball games i would get some of the writers coming up in the clubhouse and, and he says What's he talking about cheese? What's he talking about this? He had little nicknames for everything. I said, you got to get a new new vocabulary out when you're dealing with Dennis. But Dennis, Dennis had that little spark in him. He was a he was a go-getter. Yeah, and his first game is on May 27th. And, and that game is famous because of a reversed call on a home run by Ron Say. The pitcher, Mario Soto, shoves the umpire. And the next thing you know, they're they're deciding whether it's a home run or not. And he gets into it with Don Zimmer. I mean, talk about a crazy game. Well, Zim Zim was one another one of the favorite characters, our third base coach, and uh, he's a, he was a baseball lifer. He, I could sit around on the plane and, and listen to him talk about baseball and some of his experiences. But one, one funny story that always sticks in my mind about Zim, actually two, uh, we'd be flying into Philadelphia, and Zim and Harry Carey and George Frazier, our relief pitcher, they would get off on the tarmac, there'd be a limousine waiting for him to whisk them away at night down to Atlantic City. And they wouldn't reappear until the next morning at Veterans Stadium at 9 o'clock in the morning. So I used to think, oh, that's great. Our third base coach, our our announcer, and our relief pitcher are not getting sleep at all. But uh, no, Zimmer, the other story would be years later when he was a manager, I'd go down and get some starting lineups from him about 9 o'clock in the morning, and he'd say, Bob, Come back in a half an hour. The racing forms here, and I got to get my I got to get my ponies going. <laughs> I mean, the the classic character. Now you know the Cubs are still in it when when you talk about June and Dallas has one more big trade up his sleeve on June thirteenth. He's going to send Mel Hall, Joe Carter, Don Schultz, and, and Darren Banks to the Indians for Rick Sutcliffe, George Frazier, and Ron Hassey. And that Sutcliffe trade, you know, he was rookie of the year with the Dodgers and then kind of kind of things went a little bit sideways. He ends up in Cleveland where it's not happening. He makes his debut on June 19th. He gets the win. Rick Sutcliffe has one of the most unbelievable runs I've ever seen in my life. He goes 16-1 and one with the Cubs. What did having Sutcliffe bring to the team? He was an anchor. You knew when he took the ball every four or five days, okay, 
he was going to get you a W or he's going to go deep into the ball game and enable us to bring in somebody like Lee Smith to close it out or whatever. Uh, Sut the Red Baron. I mean, he, he and Jody Davis just hooked up, I mean, as a battery. And you almost could write it into your, into your book, okay? And sometimes I almost did <laughs> because Sut was always good for that W all the way up to later in the year when we clinched it in Pittsburgh on uh, September 24th with Jody Davis behind the plate catching that last uh, strikeout. It was amazing. Sutcliffe deserves so much credit for that season. But when you have a pitcher like that, everybody else falls in a two, three, and four. It makes the whole staff better. So now the, the Cubs are starting to really kind of pick up a little bit of steam. And June 23rd, 1984 is, is clearly a game that is etched in Cub fans' memories. Cubs versus Cardinals. Game of the week. Ralph Citarella versus Steve Trout. The Cubs are down 7-1, to one, then 9-3, to three, and they enter the bottom of the ninth, trailing 9-8, to eight, and Sandberg comes up to the plate against the best closer in the game, the best, former Cub Bruce Suter. And he hits a solo home run. And I think a lot of us, especially if, you know, especially for my generation, really growing up, that was like the first big baseball memory you had was that Sandberg game. He, he ties it up. The Cardinals score two in the 10th to make it 11 and nine. Suter's still on the mound. Bobby Dernier draws a two-out walk. And then Ryan Sandberg hits a two-run homer. The Cubs would win an 11. And a lot of people think Sandberg won it. No, bases loaded. It is Davey Owens who gets the RBI single to win it. But that is forever known as the Sandberg game. Rhino went five for six, two home runs, and seven RBIs. As a PR guy, you have the game of the week, and everybody in the world kind of – people don't realize back in the day, that was it. Yep. That, that was the game. Bob Costas was there. It was the game of the oh. week. But, you know, Sandberg was almost not going to be there that day. And I'll tell you the story behind that. The year before, uh, actually going back to 82 when he first came up as a third baseman, he started April. One, I think it was one for 30 or one for 31 at the plate. And I get a call into Dallas's office and he said, uh, you know, I think we're going to send Rhino back to Des Moines, AAA, and get a press release ready. And uh, we're going to probably make the announcement in two days to get it ready. Well, now it becomes May. And I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, Sandberg goes out and gets two hits this day. Then he gets three. Then he gets another two. By the end of the week, Dallas called me back into his office. He says, you got that release? He says, tear it up and throw it away where the sun don't shine. He says, that ain't going to happen. And I think it was Pat Tabler that was going to come up from Des Moines uh, or Junior Kennedy, one of the two. I can't, I can't remember. But that never happened. And years later, I used to tell Rhino, I said, Ryan, you don't know how close you were to going back to AAA. And I said, you know, in this game, and I've seen it for decades, Sometimes a guy goes back to the minor leagues and never comes back again. He loses his confidence, he gets injured, and he never makes it back up to the big show. So to see what happened to Rhino that day, I reflected back that night with Ned Coletti, my assistant. I said, you know, you remember the time we had that release ready to go? And I, I told Ryan when he went into the Hall of Fame, I said, you know, I, I should have kept that release. <laughs> <laughs> you get an autograph, it'd be worth something, right? Now at the All-Star break, the Cubs record was 48-36. They're half a game, they're within half a game. You got the Cubs, the Mets, the Phillies, they're all fighting for first. But the second half's a different story. The Cubs are rolling, the Mets are kind of even with them, and and, and the Phillies start to struggle. 
But the big moment of the second half is when the Mets and, and, you know, I'm sure Dallas didn't want to hear about this, but you have that specter of 69 and the, and the black cats and all that stuff. And, and Hey, they're still in it with the Cubs and you got a four game series with the Mets in the beginning of August, you got a, a game. And then on Saturday, and then you got a double header in the middle game of the series. And, and then you have one more game after that. And so the Cubs, take game one nine to three they scored six runs off Dwight Gooden who was battling Sutcliffe all year for Cy Young he wins rookie of the year Mm -hmm. and then both games of the double header but something sparked the team in that double header against the Mets do you remember well I remember the the whole that whole series because that was a pivotal series everybody you know when the media comes in from New York and I grew up in New York and I know that area okay they had all their their big shots coming on in and they were like ready to roll out the uh, the funeral for the Cubs. You know, <laughs> 69 was going to happen all over again. They were, the headlines in the papers and everything else. And I'll never forget, you know, I, Moreland uh, and, and, and Sarge were very instrumental in the clubhouse saying, you know what, we're the Cubs, and we're going we're gonna to take it to them. And in that second game of the doubleheader, uh, I'll never forget um, Ed Lynch throws an inside pitch uh, and I don't know if it, I can't remember whether it hit Keith Moreland or just backed him down and, and put him in the, put him in the uh, batter's box, but Moreland looked out to the mound. And then as he's a former Texas Longhorn football player, he charges the mound and he did a slide tackle that landed old Ed Lynch on his back. And that was the fire. Everybody kind of got around that and we swept that series and I always wanted to tell Ed, I wouldn't tell it to his face. I said, <laughs> but I always wanted to say, you know what? You played, we, you should, we should have given you a partial share in the, in the playoff stuff that year, because that gave us the, uh, this, that momentum of going in to July. And now we flipped the switch. It wasn't the Cubs were going to fold and the Mets were going to overtake them again. It was no stopping the Cubs now. Yeah, I mean, when that series started, the Cubs were up half a game. And when they when the Mets left, they're down four and a half games, and the Cubs don't fall out of first for the rest of the season. And then you talked about that battery of, of Jody and Rick Sutcliffe. I mean, who else would you want on the mound on September 24th, 1984? The magic numbers at one. Uh, and, you know, you're going to make it for the postseason for the first time since 45. Do you remember like the atmosphere? It was more Cub fans oh. than than Pirates fans on that night. There, there were in the stands. I remember that uh, that ninth inning. I remember that last pitch. The Sut- actually was right on the on the black of the plate. It was it wasn't <laughs> dead. And Jody caught it, and then the rush, and everybody's pouring out. I mean, it was the emotions of that. And then you know, the, the, I have to say the Pirates did a classy thing. Back in Chicago, everybody was downtown outside the at the marquee at Clark and Addison, and uh, they were celebrating in the streets and all the TV cameras. They put up on the big screen in center field so that the players, we all came back and watched it on the screen so that we wouldn't miss the celebration. <laughs> and then we went into the clubhouse and champagne was pouring all over the place. I got soaked and everybody got soaked and it was like, the greatest feeling. I know my son a couple of years ago when he was in the World Series and lost to the Dodgers when they clinched the uh, American League championship to get in there. Uh, he felt that champagne moment. And that's what you play for in baseball. You you gut it out, spring training, 162 games, playoffs and everything else. And 
that's the feeling. You want that moisture on you. And a uh, little trivia there, I found out later on the uh, the champagne bottles, okay, for anybody <laughs> wondering where they all came from, Tony Garofalo's father, <laughs> our trainer, had an inside thing. I think he was in the in the in the business of uh, the liquor business, and he got all those champagne bottles together in the clubhouse. <laughs> nice. And now, as, as a PR director, you have the unfortunate job of trying to make sure that all those players are ready because the news, even the next day, the '84 Cubs were the big story, the clinching since '45. So, what's it like when you have to wake up all these players the next day to do media? Well, we're going to get back to the hotel after the game till probably 10 or 11 o'clock, and nobody wanted to go to bed. And they're, they're, you know, we're, we're partying all over in the hallways, in the in the, in the the restaurants and everything else. And, of course, I had to go over to Sandberg and to Sutcliffe and to a couple other guys, Ronnie Say, and say, guys, Good Morning America wants us on, and they want us on it to be there at their studio at 7 o'clock in the morning. And Sandberg immediately turned left and, and bolted. And <laughs> Denier, Denier was half delirious. He said, yeah, I guess I'll be there, Moreland. So I, I said, guys, I'm coming knocking on the door at 630. And I said, I'm going to pull you out. I said, because we got to go on national TV. Well, literally, I had to pull a couple of the guys out. We got about five of them out there. <laughs> got him into a limo and off we went to the ABC Uh deal and, and and did the uh, Good Morning America show. And then there was a, just an onslaught of, you know, interviews after interviews when we got back to Chicago. And I only had a PR staff of three people. It was me, Ned Coletti, and Sharon Panazzo, and his secretary. Uh, we didn't have the staff they have today where they got, you know, nine or ten people in PR. Plus, our department also was in charge of putting out the souvenir programs. We were putting out the yearbooks. We were arranging the Cubs caravan in the winter. It was a grind. And uh, I know there was one uh, time uh, after the season, after the 84 season, I finally got a break. My We, we lived over in Arlington Heights, and we got invited to a, a New Year's Eve party. Well, most of the people in the neighborhood never had even seen me. They knew my wife, <laughs> but I would come home most nights at 11 o'clock. And I had to be back at the ballpark at seven o'clock in the morning. So we go to attend this party and I go and Vera introduces me to the neighbors and she's, Oh, we didn't know you were married. <laughs> what do you do for a living? <laughs> Baseball widow, I think is the term, That's right? That's exactly what it was, yes. And, and and so I guess one of the things that always stuck with me is when, before the season ends, I don't know how it happened, if it's organically, players, Jim Fry but that march around Wrigley Field when all the players and basically thanking the fans for the 84 season. And, and to me, that, that's that been a moment that's always kind of stuck in my head. Yeah, it's uh, it was magical. I know during that, that season, after the Sandberg game, I was hosting uh, in, uh, in Northfield, in the suburbs on the north side, a Cub Fan Mania uh, radio show there that we did once a week. And the restaurant would be sold out. 500 people would come in there and we bring out some of the ball players on that night. And I saw that magic. I mean, it was standing room only. They, I couldn't believe that they would get there sometimes two hours before the show would begin to come in and see these guys. So it was a, it was something I never experienced before. And I've been around a lot of good crowds in Baltimore with the Orioles and seen some parades and certainly with the Redskins and so forth, that that kind of topped my list that year. 
I, you know, and, and the funny thing is this is before the Super Bowl shuffle, even that, that a couple of the players decide they're going to record a, a song and that song became known as men in blue. I'm trying to think, I, I know Jody was on it. I know Rick Sutcliffe was on it. Leon Durham, uh, I think was Moreland on there. Moreland was, none of them could sing, by the way, <laughs> none of them could sing, but if you give them a couple of beers and the words would come out. Okay. And, and so just that men in blue, I, I remember that clearly. And you're thinking to yourself, I mean, to me, I, I always felt like that was just one of the best teams I'd ever seen until 2016. And even then you wonder, you know, thing baseball's weird. You, Bob, I don't have to tell you that weird things can happen. And oh, sometimes yeah. the best team doesn't always advance. But when you think about, okay, you got, you had great guys as far as the, uh, you know, leading off, you had the daily double as Harry would like to call him a Bobby D and Ryan Sandberg. You had this meet of the order where you, you, you know, you had guys like the Sarge and Moreland and Leon Durham all driving in runs. You you had a catcher in Jody Davis that just was is probably other than Gabby Hartnett the best catcher in Cubs history. But we also had some don't there were some French players there. Mm-hmm. Thad Bosley, great pinch hitter. Uh Gary Woods. Uh I love Gary. He he's no longer with us, but uh just a nice guy, a good filling in left field. He was supportive there. Uh we we had some really good uh Richie Hebner, the hacker. I mean, he was a guy too that had a little edge to him, and he he would get around. He'd been around baseball with the Pirates and the Tigers and so forth. Richie could put some spark there, and as he used to tell people, he says, "I'll bury you." And <laughs> of course, in the off season, he actually did bury a few people because his father ran a funeral home, and Richie oh, dug graves. <laughs> Episode ten of season three of the Fly the W six seventy podcast rolls on. Don't forget to listen. Don't forget to download. Don't forget to subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. And don't forget to leave those five-star reviews. You know, one of the things that sticks in every Cubs fan in 84 is when the you know before the game would start, Go Cubs Go by Steve Goodman would play. And that became synonymous with the 84 team. And I think people kind of forget yeah. that, that, you know, Steve, you know, he was battling cancer for many, many years and he wrote kind of a cheeky song. The, the dying Cub fans last request that had the lyrics, you know, the, the home of the brave, the land of the free, the doormat of the national league. But then to have go Cubs go, which I believe a couple of Cubs were also background on that. They really yep. thought they could sing Bob. And uh, I mean, it was really special. And then the, as the story goes, you know, the Cubs are going to be playing in their first postseason game since 1945. And the idea was that Steve would sing the anthem. And unfortunately, he passed away right around when the Cubs clinched. But his very good friend, Jimmy Buffett, pinch hit for him and sang the anthem. And, and you know, that, that had to have been just a very, you know, surreal moment. I it guess. was. I still hear that song today. And it, it gives me goosebumps. I, I, I immediately cheer up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, it's just uh, it's a beautiful song, and 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 you know I'm so glad that that tradition came back to mm-hmm. sing it after a win. It, it, it's yeah. and and just you know I think about Steve Goodman all the time, and you know then it gets into the postseason, and, and oh my God, the Cubs come out of that gate, game one. I mean, even I mean Rick Sutcliffe not only dominating on the mound, the guy hits a home run. Bobby Thir- D hits thirteen run. to nothing, and then. We win that ball game at Wrigley Field, and then we we come back behind Steve Trout the next day and win that game. Now we're going out to San Diego, and all we have to do is win one game of the three that we're going to play out there. And to this day, 
one of the things that after we they played the first game and we lost, okay, then there was a day off in between game three and four. And two of the wives, Joan Fry and uh, and uh, Dallas Green's wife, Sylvia, they wanted to go ahead and, and it, was a, it was a lot of, of wives and, and kids on the trip. We were going to go to the San Diego Zoo and the SeaWorld and, and Larry Bowers and I have talked about this before and some of the other guys. After that, we lost game three. We just wanted to go back to the hotel by the pool, talk baseball, sit around, have maybe have a beverage and <clears throat> think about game four. No, we were out there walking around, looking at giraffes and elephants and doing all that stuff. <laughs> and then we go to game four. And of course, Steve Garvey had some things to say about that. And we lose that game. Now we're going to game five. And uh, and that when that ball went through Leon's glove, we had that lead earlier in the game. I thought we really had it. I'm a very superstitious person. And I remember in that game around the fifth or sixth inning when we were leading, uh, I got called down and by the National League and said, you got to go down with the Oshkawana or our clubhouse guy into the clubhouse and help where we're going to have the ceremony and everything else. And I said to Ned, I said, Ned, hold the fort here. I got to go down there. I don't want to go. I got in an elevator. I, I said, I'm not happy going down here because this game's not over. Get down there. And sure enough, I could hear the roar of the crowd. I got back up there just in time to see the ball hit through Durham's glove underneath. And I remember uh, Dave Van Dyke, who was a writer in those days for the Chicago Sun-Times and was the Baseball Writers Association of America president. We had spent the first day out in San Diego putting together the master seating arrangement for the media for the World Series against the Detroit Tigers. And I think for the first two or three hours, we only could decide on one person where they're going to sit. And uh, that was, we had a gentleman back in those days who was blind. <laughs> we ended up putting behind one of those pillars because it oh, wouldn't geez. make a difference All to right. him. Okay. <laughs> uh, Bob Greenberg, God bless him. Good guy. And for the next two and a half, three hours, we sat there drinking bourbon, trying to figure out where all these people are going to be put. Well, we finally ended up getting the, the thing together. I folded the big sheet, kept it in my attache case. I had it with me up there in the press box in San Diego. Dave walks over to me in the eighth inning. He says, you got that sheet? I said, yeah. He said, let me see it. He grabs it and folds it up, takes his lighter out, and makes a torch out of it up mm. there. And I said, oh, God, all that work we put in and all this. So now we go down into the locker room afterwards. And right down the hallway was where the Padres locker room was. And we could hear all the cheering and the jumping up and down. And Dallas and myself and John Cox, our assistant general manager, and Ned, myself, and the players, we're just sitting in there moping. Some guys didn't even want to take a shower. And we're sitting on the trunks the, that, have the, uh, the, uh, that Yosh has to, for the equipment and just sitting there staring at each other. Well, we finally got on the bus and they're banging on the signs uh, on the side of the bus and uh, they're singing and chanting and everything else. We get to the airport, get on the plane, and nobody says a word on this plane. I mean, it, you could have heard a pin drop all the way back to Chicago. We landed O'Hare at about four o'clock in the morning and 
there were five buses that were taking various players at different places. So our bus, and I had Sandberg in there with Bo and a few other guys, we were going back down to Wrigley Field where the parking lot was across the street from the where the firehouse is mm-hmm. to get our cars. We get down there. It's about 5 in the morning. And all of a sudden, I see the lights go on in the firehouse. Out is about 150 to 200 people and stayed the whole night with bedsheets. And they unfolded these bedsheets, and it had hearts on them, and it says, we still love you. Well, Boa looked over at me. I still get teary-eyed about this. He looked at me. He said, Bobby, he says, we let a whole city down, didn't we? And we just stood and cried. We stood and cried there. And the next day, I had to go into the office, and everybody was in there. We just passed each other in the hallways. Nobody said anything. The next day, same thing. Nobody said anything. And on the third day, Dallas Green called for a meeting in the in the lunchroom. He got the staff together in there. And I'll never forget, he took his fist, banged it on the table. He says, guys, we had a hell of a season. This isn't over yet. We're going to go out in 85, but we got to get back to work. Sitting around here moping isn't going to help anybody. Let's get to work and get it done. He was that he was that coach, that leader. So from that point on, we went out and did that. And if you remember, the 85 season got off to a good start. We were in first place by the middle of June, and then every one of our starting pitchers went down. All five. All yep. five of them. And by the end of middle of July, we were fighting for last place. It was just – it was a gut punch. But I will say that 84 Cubs team – put forth a platform for later day Cub fans and it built up from the minor league system with Gordy Goldsberry and with Dallas Green and what that ball club did. It got us on the map and it got people believing that the Chicago Cubs could one day be a World Series champion. And I'm so happy that I still am alive and I saw that happen in 2016. I kept a bottle of uh, champagne from that season never opened it over all the years <laughs> and the night they won um uh, in game seven i popped that sucker open i bet it never tasted so sweet oh it still tasted good <laughs> and then you think about that 84 sandberg wins the mvp sought the you know the cy young sandberg under near gold glove jim fry manager of the year dallas green executive of the year i mean it was just absolutely fantastic and it really like i said it put <laughs> the Cubs back on the map. They were a forgotten team after, you know, the seventies team kind of broke up a little bit and then people just didn't realize the passion of the fan base. And now we are here 40 years later and we're, we're, you know, June 23rd, 2024 is the date for the Ryan Sandberg statue ceremony. He's the first player that's of the non 1960s team to get a statue. And obviously we know everything Rhino's going through right now and our thoughts and prayers are with him and his family. But I mean, that's gotta be, it's, it's going to be a surreal moment to see that statue unveiled and for all the, all the teammates to be back like that. It's I, I have a feeling it's going to be something that Cub fans are just never going to forget. Oh, it, it's going to be unforgettable. And, and to think that when he showed up at Ho-Ho Camp Park, actually Fitch Park is where we worked out before we went and played our exhibition games out in Mesa in uh, in 1982 
a couple of the Chicago beat writers came over to me and said, so who's this guy Sandberg that got thrown in the trade? And I pointed over here and they said, Fred Mitchell said to me and, and Dave Van Dyke and, and Joe Goddard uh, said, that's not Sandberg. That's a batting. That's a, that's a bat boy. What are you doing? Trying to pull something <laughs> over. I said, no, that's Ryan Sandberg. And I said, I'll bring you over. I'll introduce you. And that's how I got Sandberg to do his first interview, which his nickname was Gabby because he didn't talk very much. <laughs> and if you, if the backstory about that, why Sandberg was always so silent, he grew up in the, on the West coast in Washington state. And his brother told me the story that he and, uh, and, and his, his father owned a funeral home out there. Okay. And of course they had their house either next to it. I can't remember or within it and on the side. And they were always told to be very quiet and be respectful. And Rhino never spoke out of, out of character. He was very, very quiet, but his brother told me, he says, don't ever mistake that for a lack of passion or for a lack of energy. He says, Ryan has a look about him when he quarterbacked in high school. He'd look at you in the huddle in a certain way, and you better get your butt going because that look told it all. And I never realized it till one day during the uh, 83 season when something happened and uh, it dealt with Charlie Grimm and where we had spread his ashes around second base and Sandberg didn't like that <laughs> because he was spooked. And he looked over at me and I said, there's that look. <laughs> so, yeah, it's going to be a big day for Rhino. I'm so happy for him and his family and uh, certainly want to pass along my best wishes for him. If anybody can fight something, Rhino will do it. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for giving us some of your time. I really appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back on the Fly the W podcast. Looking forward to it. Crowley, great job with that interview, but uh, there is a little bit of sad news to report out of uh, Cubdom. Yeah, Tom Otis Hellman passed away yesterday. He worked as the a clubhouse manager for 50 years, five with Cincinnati, and then 45 with the Cubs. Wow. He originally started out in the visitors' clubhouse and then moved to the home clubhouse in the 1990s when the legendary Yosh Kawano retired. Um, it's just a really sad story. He was going to be missed by his family, friends, and all the ball players who he cared for, like family. Yeah, I saw Tom Ricketts uh, on social media saying that they lost a really great uh, member of the Cubs family. So nice to see him pay his respects. Uh, Crowley, that's a wrap. Don't forget to listen, download, review, and subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. Of course, follow us on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and you can email Crowley and I, flythew670 at gmail.com. And you can watch us. That's right. You can see Crowley and I on YouTube by subscribing to the 670 score youtube channel crowley have a uh, great week and uh maybe watch the super bowl or at least go to a party i'm gonna try but more than anything i'm gonna be watching my phone waiting for breaking news which will have it occurs except on the super bowl go cubs it's all over 